Hello, Hub listeners. Roger Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to this, our regular Friday roundtable podcast. I'm joined, as I am each and every Friday, by Sean Spear, the editor-at-large at The Hub. Sean, how do we find you today, the 8th of December? A lot better than yesterday morning. Uh, yesterday morning, Roger uh, and listeners, I woke up uh, to appear at 8.15 a.m., uh, before the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage to talk about a subject we talk about here pretty frequently, which is the future of the news media and the role of public policy. And I was subjected to two hours of parliamentarians <laughs> fighting with one another about amendments and sub-amendments and sub-sub-amendments to motions. It was not the finest display of democracy uh, or high-mindedness. And so I'm I'm grateful to be here with you today. <laughs> <laughs> and Sean, you're not wearing the goofy headset that uh, <laughs> listeners can check out. Uh, we have posted the video of Sean's uh, testimony on our website, along with his uh, excellent uh, opening statement to the chair. But yeah, that was like very, I don't know, Luke Picard. Uh, was it Star Trek? <laughs> Is it Star Wars? I don't know what the heck that headset was. Well, the, the, the backstory, uh, which will either amuse listeners or horrify them, is that to participate virtually before a parliamentary committee these days requires that you wear an approved headset. There's about ah, five or so you can choose yeah. from, which, of course, prompts the question, why? You know, why not use any headset you want? And I was told it's for health and safety reasons, Rudyard, uh, for the translators. Apparently, there was an incident uh with a non-approved headset at some point in the past couple of years. And so um, the net result was I, I looked goofy for a couple of hours, but probably less goofy than the uh, 10 or so parliamentarians <laughs> <laughs> that I was subjected to. I'll give you that. Well, we have to <laughs> open the roundtable this week, Sean, with a discussion of um, the public outcry that has followed in not only the United States, but here in Canada too, to testimony given at the uh, U.S. Congress by the heads of three of America's most prominent universities, Harvard, MIT, and Penn. The presence of these universities, when asked if um, advocating for the genocide of Jews would be contrary to the code of conduct at their university were unable or unwilling to answer in the affirmative. Now, there's a lot of different directions, Sean, that we can take this on. I want to kind of avoid, you know, too much bathtub thumping, because I genuinely think that this was a, a kind of an important moment. It was pulling the veil aside uh, from these elite institutions and exposing I'll say it, a kind of intellectual, ideological rot that I think shocked a lot of the public. What's your take? Yeah, as you say, there's a whole host of directions we could take it. I mean, we could talk about the bankruptcy of the consultant class, who I presume were behind these um, bland statements, and then the subsequent apology statements. So, you know, in, in, in moments like these, the, the, the group that undoubtedly gets rich are the public relations consultants. We can talk a bit about, I'd like to, the distinction between public and, and private institutions, because I would note, at least in the immediacy of, of uh, this incident, 
we we see private institutions doing what they should be doing, including boards of directors and donors and others exercising the kind of market um, tools that they have to to respond to these instances. But but let's stay on the point that you raised because I think it's the important one. Universities need to be places of debate. They need to be places where different ideas can be brought to bear. Um, but they can't be so relativistic, become so relativistic to um, not be able to say the call for the genocide of the Jews uh, is something that would be unacceptable on college campuses. Um, we need to have scope for uh, a broad exchange of ideas, frankly, a broader exchange of ideas than we typically see day to day, which incidentally is one of the reasons I think people have been so offended by this, um, by this sudden a free speech absolutism from uh, these university presidents. But but I, I think we should be able to, in our minds, hold two things at once, two ideas at once. First, we need as much room for, for different ideas and different arguments and and different perspectives. And on the other hand, we, we should be able to draw some some red lines around ideas and say, no, those ideas are bad or wrong or, or not permitted here. And you know, if you were drafting that list, as as limited as it ought to be, calling for the genocide of the Jews um, strikes me as probably something that pretty that ought to be pretty high up there. Uh, what, what's your reaction? Yeah, I, I think part of the reaction to this is just the rank hypocrisy is that everyone knows there is an extensive list that corresponds to a, you know, a hierarchy of uh, the aggrieved and the oppressed as defined by universities today. So that they're, I mean, these are the institutions, Sean, that, that pioneered, you know, concepts like safe spaces and trigger warnings and, uh, you know, the use of uh, an ever expanding list of pronouns to describe uh, students with, you know, if not the outright mandating that faculty and school administration should kind of follow student preferences, certainly an incredible amount of peer and other institutional pressure brought to bear on people to conform within these institutions to um, the pervasiveness of critical race theory, of um, concepts of decolonization as a, you know, as a sine qua non, the animating moral tenant of much of higher education today. So I, I think what the blowback is or the reaction to this is just an awareness that if if this was about any other group and that there had been this kind of outrageous um, uh, hate-inducing speech directed against a minority community that was higher up um, you know, the pyramid of perceived sins of omission and commission committed against them by the dominant society, that these university presidents and administrators and faculty would have been all over this. So at the end of the day, I think we're left with just one simple conclusion that in a bizarre way, these hyper-tolerant, hyper-vigilant institutions are riddled with anti-Semitism. And that to me is just, it's, it's just shocking that how their own philosophies and ideologies have ended up in this moral quagmire where they are unable to differentiate 
discrimination from one group to another and identify discrimination when it's happening to a group, in this case, the Jewish students and faculty on their campuses. Yeah, that seeming dichotomy, it turns out, isn't all that dichotomous, isn't it? Um, you know, it, similarly, we had in the past year or so, the federal government contracting, you know, upwards of hundreds of thousands of dollars with an individual to do diversity, equity, inclusion training. And it turns out he's a hardcore anti-Semite. Um, you know, the, for some peculiar reason, the Venn diagram between those who uh, who are committed to these uh, ideologies of of the primacy of identity um, also, it turns out, um, uh, have a kind of racialist point of view when it comes to everything. You know, we, we wrote an article, we published an article a while ago at The Hub um, called The Theory of Everything, or the, the, the Housing Theory of Everything, rather. You know, I think what we're seeing play out here is the identity theory of everything. When you um, come to think about individuals not based on their character, or their um, or their merit, or their hard work, or whatever. When all you all you need to know about someone is their race, or their gender, or their sexuality, and you create a culture where that's how it, you know entire groups of people are organized and understood, it is the climate, the conditions for uh, racialism and racism and anti-Semitism to flourish. And you would think universities, which at you know at some level ought to be committed to the inherent principles of the Enlightenment, would be the the most uh, uh, averse of any institutions in our society to an ideology that says uh, you don't need to know anything about an individual. All you need to know is um, certain uh, uh, immutable characteristics that tells you everything about them. It's a deeply unhealthy and corrosive trend, ideological trend. It is obviously most pervasive in our universities, but for those of you listening who work for big corporations or work for nonprofits, I, I wouldn't be inclined to be so um, um, self-righteous or dismissive because make no mistake, these ideologies are taking shape in your own institutions as well. And you know, I, I, I hate to say, if, to try to take a, a, a good, outcome out of all this because it's hard to but the extent to which it's exposed for ordinary people who don't encounter this stuff on a regular basis the extent to which it, it forces them to confront what's going on in our society um you know that that may be one positive takeaway from what's been going on for the past several weeks mm -hmm. well let's bring this back to public policy because it's a lot of what we'd like to talk about at the hub you wrote a great piece this week on universities in Canada, because I think one of the important things to mention here, it doesn't in any way excuse Harvard, Penn or MIT, is that they are private institutions. Yes, they receive, you know, various forms of scientific and other research and funding from the US federal government. But generally, these are organizations compared to Canadian universities that are sustained through endowments, um, much higher, you know, tuition, and to a degree that would make Canadian universities very envious are, uh, you know, self-sufficient. Let's not in, again, not in their entirety, but certainly compared to the Canadian context, much more independent from the state. 
So the question that you raised in your piece, and you, I want you to talk a little bit about the reaction to it, because you got a lot of email about it, was basically that universities in Canada need to be really careful about their social license, because it is eroding before their eyes. That Canadians are seeing taught on university campuses a series of beliefs or ideas captured under these you know, banners of decolonization, critical race theory, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion that are demonstrably um, unproductive, not particularly contributing to a lot of the very valid reasons that we fund universities to produce new intellectual property, to create an informed um, and skilled workforce that can go out and help power our economy. Um, these universities and the departments within them that are dedicated to these subjects instead are promoting ideas that are, I would go beyond to say antithetical to our society. They advocate in a sense for the destruction of the institutions and values that make the university itself possible in our society. So talk a little bit about your piece, Sean, and I want to hear more importantly from you about the reaction to it and where the pushback is. How are people arguing against what I think is a really smart wake-up call to universities? Guys and girls, you're losing public support, and maybe more importantly, it's time to rethink how government funds universities based on what they actually do and what they contribute to society. Yeah, it's been something I've been thinking a lot about really since, you know, basically October 7th. And I should say we both have affiliations with different universities. You know, I've spent a lot of time in universities. Um, this isn't a kind of knee-jerk anti-university point of view or, or an anti-intellectual point of view. It's to say we are collectively spending approximately $20 billion a year um, on universities. That That is public funding from from different orders of government. And it's not an insignificant amount. It's almost the same amount as we spend on national defense each and every year. And it seems to me with those public dollars ought to come some democratic accountability. My grandfather in Thunder Bay on a pension who's sending money to Ottawa and Queens Park every year, you know, probably ought to have some say in the ideas that are being advanced and promulgated in his name with his resources. And of course, um, herein lies attention. Uh universities want uh, taxpayer dollars, but they don't want any strings attached. They they claim the principle of academic freedom, which is a, a terribly important one for, for various reasons, including, if nothing else, the advancement of knowledge. But I would say democratic accountability um, is an equally important principle. And in a way, I think, Rudyard, they're kind of irreconcilable. Um, and as long as universities are going to not just permit but increasingly orient themselves to these ideas that, as you say, at best, don't contribute, um, don't make a broad-based contribution to, to our society, and at worst, may actually produce negative externalities, the extent to which they're contributing to this climate that has been at the foundation of a lot of the, the violence and protests and intimidation that we've seen, then I, I think something has to give. And um, it's not obvious to me that universities are in a position to transform themselves or, or change themselves, in which case I think we need to think seriously about how they're financed. You may not like what you saw out of the presidents of Harvard, uh, Penn, and MIT, but as I said earlier, 
there's an inherent kind of market mechanism to solve for that. Donors or students or board board members, others can take their money or take their their um, uh, their volunteer activity or whatever elsewhere if they don't like it. We don't have that option in a publicly financed system. And I think if you're a university president, um, you know you should be concerned about the the risks. I think to 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 the model to the public funding in light of what's happened in the past several weeks. Yeah, my final thought on this is that, you know, up until a while ago, the best defense that universities had against a kind of more selective or prioritized approach towards supporting universities was an argument that they were generally um, places of open debate, that they were spaces within our society where different ideas could be contested and argued. And that, in fact, is a very process of knowledge, you know, formation, and that you need the contestation of ideas to drive, you know, new thinking about society and its challenges. Um, and, and I think they would say that under that older kind of formation of the university, that for the government to pick winners and losers, would be um, you know, as efficient as the government picking winners and losers when it comes to battery technology, which may not be around uh, in 10 or 15 years from now. The problem that universities have, I think today, is that they just have no credibility with the public. And I think demonstrably in terms of their own institutional cultures, the space of you know, open and free debate has so radically shrunk on campuses that they themselves have engaged in a priori exercise of determining uh, what what is uh, what is in the public good, um, based often and increasingly, unfortunately, on a bunch of of what should be marginal, but in fact, on campuses are kind of mainstream theories around critical race, decolonization. We can go through the entire list, so that universities have lost this this kind of insulation, this insurance that I think they had that existed in the past to prevent government stepping in and starting to say, well, no, we'd really like to prioritize the hard sciences and de-emphasize our support for the humanities because demonstrably productivity is falling in Canada along with per capita GDP and half of all tax revenue is getting uh, consumed at the provincial level by healthcare. So, sorry, we just, you know, we can't provide this kind of blanket support. And I think the university no longer has a good rebuttal to that. You cannot say, based on the highly scripted, curated culture that they've created on these campuses, that they themselves aren't involved, you know, in picking winners and losers, in having a theory of the case, when really the whole point of these institutions is not to have a theory of everything. Let's give you the last word on this, Sean, and then we'll move on to the next segment. Well, um, you asked about the reaction, and, and I, I'm afraid that I might have sidestepped that question. Um, it was overly negative from the university community. Um, not all of them. I noticed, for instance, that some in different sciences tweeted or retweeted the piece, which is which is kind of interesting. But I did get a lot of reaction that it you know, represented a threat to academic freedom you know, raising the question of democratic accountability. Um, but as I say, I wrote it not um, as an antagonist of of the university community, but in some ways as an ally and a, a kind of wake up call. And the the extent to which it wasn't received that way 
signals to me, one, a kind of entitlement mentality, and two, an inability to navigate what is becoming an increasingly less hospitable political environment. And if they don't get their act together, it'll be to the detriment of the university sector. And in that sense, I think over in overall terms, a detriment to our society. And so I hope um, the testimonies before the American Congress this week and the negative reaction kind of scares some university presidents in Canada straight um, to stop um, organizing their universities and being so responsive to the most radical voices on campus because they are not representative, I would say, of the university campuses themselves. And they're certainly not representative of the societies in which they inhabit. And also just for universities and university leadership to think about what are the things that we're doing which we can demonstrably show to the public are, is truly in the common interest of society as a whole. And I think it's just very difficult for any thinking person to understand how these radical, at times, um, violence-inducing kind of theories around decolonization and critical race theory are in any way advancing the broader public good. So this kind of, this exercise needs to start inside universities because if they don't do it, trust me, Yes, Doug Ford will. Doug Ford will. The, the, you know, this testimony this week kind of tore the veil aside and people saw what just a complete insane asylum it is in some of these institutions and the extent to which their leadership is devoid of a kind of, of a moral theory of anything and everything. Well, let's take a break. When we're back on the other side, 25 years since Jack Granenstein wrote uh, the big Canadian bestseller, Who Killed Canadian History? History is suddenly hot again. People are kind of nervous about what Canadians do or don't know about our nation and how that affects our national unity in the light of October 7 and the new divisions uh, that we are seeing in Canadian society. So I want to unpack that debate for you right after this break. The Hub has the perfect holiday gift for the thinking person in your life. That's right. You can give the gift of the Hub. Hub gifties get all kinds of great benefits, including a one-size-fits-all luxury twill Hub baseball cap to sport their hubbiness this holiday. You get access for your giftie to Hub Forum, our daily email newsletter and discussion group, complimentary access for the giftie to all our live events, and special offers on events, books, and Hub merchandise. Grab your Hub gift subscription right now at our website, www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the Join button, scroll to the bottom of our membership page, follow the instructions, and we'll give you 20% off right now on this gift offer. Simply input the promo code SUBSCRIBE20 at checkout. Give the gift of the Hub this holiday season. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. And yes, that was our new ad for Hub Gift Memberships. So just to iterate or reiterate, if you have a person in your life that loves smart debate, informed conversation, uh, go to www.hub.ca, click on Join, look for the Hub gift opportunity, um, all kinds of great perks that come with becoming a hub giftee. And uh, we got you covered 
for your holidays. Okay, Sean, uh, let's talk about who killed Canadian history for those of the audience that have not read this book um, and maybe weren't around 25 years ago to do so. Why are we spending some time at the hub uh, kind of profiling and commemorating the anniversary of the book? And what does the book touch on now in terms of this, uh, as I said before the break, I think this kind of moment of anxiety in our culture about the extent to which the touchstones that could inform a sense of common identity and purpose seem few and far between in Canada today. Next week, Rudyard, we're going to release uh, an episode of our regular podcast, Hub Dialogues, where you and I uh, wrap up the year by um, letting the Hub community into how we're thinking about um, the Hub, some of the opportunities and challenges we're experiencing at the Hub, but most fundamentally, um, uh, an expression of gratitude to our community for letting us do what we do. And I would say the symposium that we launched this week on who killed Canadian history is part of that story. I mean, where else could where else can you find a multi-week uh, set of commentaries about this book 25 years ago, which really at the time captured, I think, a, a growing sense uh, within certain circles that we had uh, essentially uh, overcorrected when it came to the, the way we thought and understood Canadian history. Up until then, you know, for a long time, of course, the study of history was the story of um, a kind of weakish version of history that really studied political leaders and, and what I think critics would say, old white men. And there was an effort, um, you know, beginning in the 1970s and 80s um, to try to broaden um, whose voices were told and whose stories were told and even who was telling those stories. And we saw the rise of different forms of history, social history, class history, gender history, and, and so on. And what Granitstein set out so forcefully 25 years ago and who killed Canadian history, that the consequence of those trends was that we were losing uh, a sense of, of, of a national story. And it, it wasn't just limited to um, what university campuses, it was even then starting to mass it manifest itself within the broader population, including amongst young people. It just, it just so happens that the book relies heavily on a survey conducted by the Dominion Institute, which you know something about, which showed that even then young Canadians had a, a weakening understanding of their history. And I, it was a powerful book. It was a controversial book, but I would say it was in its fundamental insight, correct. And of course, you know, as we were just discussing in the previous segment, um, it was a prescient book because the issues that he was ringing the alarm bells about 25 years ago have only become um, um, a, a bigger challenge and threat to our society. And so it's for those reasons we've we're, we've commissioned a, a bunch of different people. Uh, this week, we ran a piece from Chris Dumit, the Trent University historian. Next week, we have a young female PhD student kind of following in the footsteps of Granitstein and talking about her experience. We have a high school teacher uh, next week who similarly is, is, is kind of struggling to navigate the world that, that Granitstein himself warned about. And I think it's all in the mission of the hub to try to, um, amongst other things, um, you know, grab Canadians and, and Canadian policymakers by the lapels, so to speak, and say, this matters. Um, a, a common sense of citizenship and a common national narrative 
uh, matters and, and it's something that we need to to kind of rediscover and, and that's why yeah yeah yeah, yeah 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 because <laughs> look i mean maybe some readers say this but i i kind of you know bled a couple quarts of blood in the history wars of you know the late 90s and early 2000s you know as as the head of the domain institute leading that charity for over a decade and these were all the same arguments we made then um you know uh and then, you know, uh, we elected a prime minister uh, in 2015 who, before he was elected, espoused a theory of Canada as a post-national state, um, a kind of view that the country's strengths uh, were based on the fact that we had an absence of a strong national identity. And that allowed different groups from different places uh, over, all over the world to come to Canada and create lives together um you know dedicated to um ideas of inclusion and tolerance and diversity and that argument won that argument dominated um i think our consciousness through both the period of the dominion institute um the 2000s the first decade of this century when we were fighting a kind of rear guard action for the importance of history as a cornerstone of identity. And then I think that argument um, was victorious. I think it obliterated all and every competitor, all and every uh, competitor, and in no small way, seeded the ground, Sean, for these more radical and I think dangerous ideas around decolonization that rest on really disturbing theories about the transformative effects of violence and how violence itself changes the psychology. I think of Franz Fanon and the other kind of thinkers that this movement goes back to, that the act of violence by the oppressed against the oppressor frees the oppressed from, a, from their kind of slave consciousness and liberates them through the act of destruction and violence. It led to the destruction of statues in Canada, the burning of, of churches, um, a whole series of, I think, acts that foreshadowed the extreme violence, the, the genocide of October 7. And I'm, I'm just a little bit, well, I'm a little bit, what's my mood? I'm a little bit... I don't even know how to express it, but after October 7, when people start saying, well, wouldn't it be good if we knew a little bit more about our history and we could, you know, have some things that we shared in common because boy, we certainly seem divided. And there's all these people running around talking about decolonization. That doesn't look so good in terms of what happened in Southern Israel. Well, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, if you spend 20 years pushing your history into the, into the proverbial dustbin and then larding on top of it, uh, mounds of kind of racial and other uh, cultural induced guilt. And you assume that everything colonial, everything that happened, I don't know, before 1867 is just an endless list of sins of omission and commission. I'm sorry, Sean, there's nothing to rebuild. There's no going back. Humpty Dumpty cannot be put back together again. The book isn't who killed Canadian history. The book that's written today is Canadian history is dead.
it's a good rant. I'm glad you got it in. Um, <laughs> and and I and and I I just want to say on behalf of everyone, you know, what you did at the Minion Institute was extraordinary. And even though it it feels like a regard action, I, I regard action. I think it did matter. Um, we saw the Harper government take up a lot of the ideas or impulses behind the work that you were doing then, including, of course, the the redesign of the Canadian Citizenship Guide, which was widely regarded, I think, as a, a serious attempt to um, to infuse I, common ideas about Canadian history, uh, inclusive ones, but common ones, um, in the name of a, a, a shared sense of citizenship. But I, I take your point. The only reason why I'm a bit more optimistic, uh, Rudyard, is I, I do think on all this stuff, there is a silent majority. Um, and, you know, one proof point of this is I, I've always had this hypothesis that the Harper government, one of the major reasons the Harper government wins majority election in 2011 is because how ca Canadians, a sense of of nationalism and pride in the aftermath of the 2011 Olympics in Vancouver, um, that um, they were permitted in that one rare instance um in the it, it, to to kind of express these latent ideas of 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 national identity and uh, national enthusiasm and a kind of sense of 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 shared of shared citizenship and um it trans translated into uh in, at least in part into to the inside election outcome so i think it's there it's latent it's looking for someone to speak to it 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 rejects a lot of the ideologies that we're talking about and um, and so for that reason, uh, I'm not, I think it's on, I think Canadian history is on life support, um, but I'm not prepared to put it in the grave just yet. Yep. Maybe it's just uh scar tissue, Sean, that's talking here, but um, I don't know. I just, I look at the country. I look at the extent to which um, what's happening in schools and curriculum, um, what's happening in universities, the degree to which people um yeah, maybe it's living in Toronto, which is a particularly um, tough city at times because it it's so big, it's hard to see commonality. And if maybe if I was living in a smaller town or somewhere else where people had some connection to place, um, these types of feelings that the country really has just turned into a series of, you know, condo developments with each and every one of us living in our kind of rabbit hutches plugged into Netflix and uh, our social feeds, that kind of, and on me would might not be as intense. So um, as the uh, Harvard president tried to apologize for her abysmal, um, yeah, testimony at, at Congress issuing a, a statement uh, end of day Friday that she was, you know, telling her, her truth, living her story maybe that's what I'm doing here. So I don't, I don't want to extrapolate too much. And I, I hope you're right, Sean, but boy, we, if we're going to rebuild a sense of common identity based on anything on sport, on history, on geography, on symbols, we're coming to this exercise really, really late. And we're coming to it without a lot of, a lot of reference points to even start to begin that conversation. And, you know, I think we've seen that since October 7, that there are segments of our society that really do not share um, 
a fundamental belief in in some of the credos of of Western civilization and its you know commitment to the protection of individual autonomy, the rights of uh, self and state determination. Um, I don't know, Sean. It's it's. I want to be hopeful, but it's tough in light of recent events and then the the trend. The trend is not our friend. Yes, but I would I would say this a, a couple of things maybe to try to wrap up on a a, a forward looking note. The first is we've bet on pluralism and diversity in this country, right? I mean, demographically, that's the bet we've made. Uh, I think it's a good bet, um, but for that bet to work, it's going to require. Um, the connective tissue that you're talking about. So in, in other words, um, a commitment to a national story is not a an option at this point. It is a necessity uh, for what is really quite genuinely a an extraordinary experiment that we're about to, to undertake as a society in which, you know, by 2040, half of the population um, will be first or second generation immigrants. Um, I think it's a model that can work. I think it speaks to, it actually speaks to the strengths of Canada. But as you say, um, it, it requires a, a common foundation. The second thing I'll say is um, read our ongoing symposium. I mentioned a couple of pieces we'll run next week. We have um, a regular contributor, Paul Bennett, writing for us um, by the end of the month. Paul actually was a master's student and a PhD student of Jack Granitstein. And I would just say, in case listeners are curious, I sent Jack a note. Uh, Jack uh, Granitstein is someone who's contributed to the hub at different times over the past few years, which has been a huge thrill for Rudyard and me. Uh, I can tell you that he was uh, grateful um, that the hub was uh, taking seriously his book and I think speaks to his kind of integrity. He refused to know who was contributing to the series. Uh, he didn't want to he didn't want to influence uh, what we're doing. Um, um, but I think if you read the first two pieces this week by JDM Stewart and Chris Dumit, you'll see um, that broadly speaking, the conclusion is Jack was right. Um, and we have to make up for the lost time over the past 25 years. Good point. Let's uh, end on that positive note, Sean. Great to talk with you this Friday. And just a reminder to our listeners, uh, if you're enjoying the hub, give the gift to the hub. Come on. Um, <laughs> cure me of my dyspeptic outlook by allowing me on Monday or Tuesday to open up our uh, sales report for hub gift memberships and see a slew of happy hubbers. Am I allowed to say that? God, that sounds awful. We have to create a kind of uh, a name for what it is to be part of the hub community. But uh, look, we'd really appreciate it. If you would spread the gift of the hub this holiday season, you can do that right now on our website, www.thehub.ca. Just click on the join button, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you'll see the options for gifting. And hey, you get a charitable tax receipt at the same time. Everyone have a safe, happy weekend, and we'll do this all again next Friday. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, come on over to www.thehub.ca and check us out. You'll find all kinds of great commentary, analysis, and insights by our writers, including Sean Spear. While you're there, consider clicking on the Join button. This will take you to our complimentary membership offer. Put in your email and we will send you each Saturday a compilation of our best writing and commentary from the week that was. We really appreciate your support. And we also greatly appreciate the support of the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Foundation and the Maxine and Ira 
Gordonsky Gluskin Foundation for making these podcasts possible. The Hub Roundtable is produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. Thank you for listening.